looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest. Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and asked, What is it? Do you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him don't tell anyone that you've 
reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So Acts 23 is kind of more the same here as Paul is now in chains and he's at the mercy of the Romans or so they think. Uh, he's before the council of the Sanhedrin as we start the chapter off here and Paul knows where this is heading. He knows he's, uh, he goes into Jerusalem being warned prophetically and you remember this. They warned him, they told him you're gonna be bound, you're gonna, there's gonna be trouble over and over again. He was warned. So he goes in with his eyes wide open. He knows persecution and bondage awaits him, but he goes because the Holy Spirit is leading him there. I want to say something about that before we jump into verse by verse here. Don't be afraid to face hardships if they are God-ordained. Let me say that again. Don't be afraid to face hardships if they're God-ordained. The only thing we should fear is facing hardships of our own design and creating drama for ourselves. Remember I said there's two kinds of suffering, redemptive suffering and foolish suffering. This is not foolish suffering for Paul. He's not in chains because of his own stupidity or his own you know, sinfulness or he was a lawbreaker. He's in chains because God is using him to spread the gospel and to solidify the early church. He's already did a mighty work in the Gentiles that planted churches. He's gonna be writing epistles to these churches while he's in bonds, but this suffering that he's going through is God-ordained, and he faces it without fear. And I hope you're picking that up. We don't have to be afraid to go through stuff if God is ordering our steps. Obedience that brings temporary suffering in this life is much better than disobedience that brings eternal suffering in the next. I wish some more people besides Julius would say amen. Here, let me read it. Maybe I'll try a different language. Obedience that brings temporary suffering. I wish I could have did it in Spanish. That would have been awesome. 
in this life is much better than disobedience that brings eternal suffering in the next. Some people are partying now, but they're going to pay for eternity. Some people are resisting persecution. They're, they're giving themselves over to sin now, and their lives seem like almost, you know, at times, like David said, like, why do the wicked prosper? But they're, they're playing now. They're going to pay later. Some of us are paying now. But it's going to be an eternity in his presence, an eternal reward. Amen. So Paul is snatched up. He's beaten by the re religious leaders. The Romans rescue him. The mob listens to his defense, but they don't like it. So they, they, they riot again. They want to kill him. They don't want to hear that he's called to preach to the Gentiles. That's a huge offense to them. The Romans just about flog him. They stop short when they find out he's a citizen. Now he stands before the Sanhedrin under Roman guard. Imagine standing before your own people with your oppressors defending you. Interesting situation here. Verse 1, Paul is before the council. The Sanhedrin, remember, they're the body of high religious power and leadership. The group includes the high priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and there's others there. They're the religious power brokers, and they're the legalists, and they're ones who take the Jewish law and the traditions and use them for their own gain. His opening statement thoroughly enrages them. He says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before you, before God, up to this day. Now, he says that, and right away, they're angry because they saw Paul as a blasphemer. They saw him as an infidel and a violator of their law, and they'd already decided that they wanted to kill him. So when he stands up and says, I'm completely righteous and at peace, and my conscience is clear, they're really ticked off by that. You know, there are people that, you know, look at Christians and look at us and put all kinds of judgments on us. We're narrow-minded, we're homophobic, we're judgmental, all, all kinds of labels because we believe this. Come on. And they think, you know, the Bible says that at some point they will think they're doing God a favor by killing us. That's what scripture says when persecution comes. These guys didn't get it. Paul was being persecuted. They thought they were righteous, but they were unrighteous, and they're persecuting a righteous man here. Uh, he stands before them. He makes his statement. They're, they're offended by it. They see him as a blasphemer. So what do they do? In verse 2, the high priest Ananias orders Paul to be smacked in the mouth. So they just they haul off and hit him. Here's this guy, and he's just, I don't know what he did if he just went like a boom. So they, 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 they strike him. They do violence against him. And we see... <laughs> We see Paul kind of counterattack verbally here, and I like this, and I like the way they did it in the video. But he says to them, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and then violate the law and order me to be struck? So we see a little human side of Paul, amen? Thank God for that, right? Most of us wouldn't take a rap in the mouth and just be like, thank you, sir, may I have another? Hello? So here, Paul has a human side. He's not like an angel floating on a cloud. He's human. Now, you, you might listen to his remark there. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I'm like, oh, right. What, you know, that's, that's coming back there. But does that sound like a real big insult, a whitewashed wall? Uh, when's the last time you called someone a whitewashed wall? You were in traffic today. They cut you off. You whitewashed wall with your Honda Accord. No. It's not something we say, and it doesn't sound like a big insult, but yet calling someone a whitewashed wall was a huge insult. Hear what it meant. 
Here's what it means. It's speaking of a dirty, filthy, unclean wall that's just quickly painted over with a coat of white paint to hide all the filth underneath it. Okay, here's the spiritual implication. You're morally rotten. You are just veiling that moral rot with a superficial outer covering. Wow. High level, black belt level insult right there. You're filthy, morally rotten. You're, you're twisted. And, and all you do is you put this outward religious facade on to cover up your moral rot. Wow. Big time insult. And it, it was, you know, something that Jesus had said to the Pharisees as well. Why? Because when you're spiritually rotten and you try to look like you're spiritually righteous, it's an offense to God. And so that whole idea of being whitewashed was a big insult. Paul lets it go. Uh, In verse four and five, it's interesting that Paul is rebuked for pretty much lipping off to the high priest. Now, he he finds out that, you know, that guy who just ordered him struck that he just told off and called morally rotten was the high priest. So that was a big deal. You know, back in the day, uh, you had to be respectful of those who were in authority or they could take your head off. It's quiet now. We have a generation that's disrespectful to everybody. You think that you can say anything to anybody and there's no repercussions. Not in that day. He knew that he had spoken out of line. Now, he's rebuked for it. And Paul's response here is a little bit interesting. He, first of all, he says, I'm sorry. I didn't know that he was the high priest. Now, that's a little weird to me because the video showed he was in the high priest garb. And so I don't know if he didn't have it on or the high priest just came in out in his ephod or they woke him up. I don't know what the condition was, but for some reason, and Paul should have known that Ananias was the high priest and he didn't. He says, I'm sorry. You know, he's got to be telling the truth that, you know, I didn't know you were the high priest. And so he, he says that. And then he quotes a scripture as he apologizes. He says, you shall not curse God nor curse the ruler of your people. He quotes Exodus 22:28 there. If you were ever curious about what scripture that was, Exodus 22, 28 says, you shall not curse God nor the ruler of your people. So <clears throat> here's Paul. They struck him. They shouldn't have. But yet he takes, the, he takes the high road and he apologizes. Interesting response there from him. The slap in Paul's face set the tone for the meeting. Did you ever go to a meeting and it had been predecided how it's going to go down? They call you into the office, you're already fired. They're already calling security for you to clear out your desk. This is painful for anybody at this point. You know, the meeting was, you know, this is how this was going to go. It didn't matter what Paul said. And the smack in the mouth sets the tone for the meeting. Paul uses, he sees what's going on here right away. And under the leadership, you know, of the Holy Spirit, I, I don't want you to think this is just Paul being savvy, although he was. But uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Paul uses his understanding of their theology against the group. And what he does is he sidetracks them. He knows what these guys believe. Why? Because he was one of them. He was a Pharisee. So if you look at four and five, it said, but the bystander said, do not revile God's high priest. Paul said, I didn't know that he was the high priest. It is written, you should not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Verse six, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection 
of the dead. So Paul knows their theology. He, recognized, he didn't recognize the high priest, but he recognizes the two groups in there. And then the Holy Spirit uses this. He sidetracks them from uniting against him. He says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial today for what? For what Pharisees believe. Pharisees believed in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees were all about that. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, the other, the other half of the people in the room, did not believe that. So in verse 7, you see it works like a charm. The Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, immediately begin to attack the Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection, and their unity is shattered immediately. You got to catch this in here. You know, Paul is using his understanding of their theology to drive a wedge between them. Like a military tactician, he uses the tried and true tactic of divide and conquer, and it works beautifully. He gives them the, the theological debate, and immediately they forget about persecuting him and killing him, and they start fighting with each other. Did you see them fighting each other on that video there? You know, it's like a family gathering. It's like, you know... It's like a barbecue. It's Christmas time, Thanksgiving. Just religious people fighting. Some of you won't smile for anything. How about for $5? I mean, isn't it kind of comical? They kind of lose their focus, and they, and they want to fight about theology, and they forget about Paul. This is an interesting turn of events here. They were divided over theology. Now, Philip Melanchthon was an advisor to Martin Luther in the Reformation. And he said this, and those of us who study theology know it. He said, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. In all things, we have charity. Did you hear that? Let me give you that quote again. In essentials, what is he talking about? The essential foundations of the doctrine, amen? Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was born of a virgin. These are the essentials, right? In the essentials, he says, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. That means if it's a non-essential doctrine, if, it, if it's not heaven or hell, if it's not going to destroy your soul, we can have different opinions about things. Hello? And so this is important for the body of Christ here. And in all things, we have charity. What does that mean? Love. We should be loving when we disagree theological. Now, these guys didn't, didn't get this quote because it happened thousands of years later, but they decided at the drop of a hat to fight over the same thing they'd been fighting over all the time. This was the rub between these two groups, and Paul just exploits it. Verse 8 gives us a nice little summary of the clash between them. The Sadducees didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in spirits, and the Pharisees believed in all of that. Now, verse 9 shows us that the, the theological debate here gets heated. And the Pharisees, in their defense of their views, forget about killing Paul, and they actually start to defend him. I want you to see, God can turn our enemies against each other, amen? When God is for us, who can be against? And so these guys are fighting with themselves, and the Pharisees, who are just, you know, plotting to kill him, you know, we find nothing wrong with this man, they say in verse 9. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So interesting turn of events here. 
Paul's knowledge and theology and the fact that he was a Pharisee works to his advantage. In verse 10, the Sanhedrin's examination of Paul has gone off the rails. It's a total gong show. At this point, the Romans have to, again, drag him away from the murderous mob, and they pull him back to the barracks. And, you know, you say, well, why do the Romans even care? Why don't they just let him finish him off? Because this man was a Roman citizen, you say, well, why was Paul a Roman citizen? God made sure he got Roman citizenship so that he would wind up in Rome. Why? Because God wants him to testify in Rome about the gospel. So here he is, a Roman citizen under Roman care. If you're, if you're a Roman soldier and you have a Roman citizen under your charge, nobody kills him out from under you or you're in trouble. See how all this is working here. God created this situation to effectuate exactly what he wanted to do, and it's working per perfectly. The apostle is under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, and he seemingly talks himself out of a tight spot. So in case Paul was thinking, wow, you know, this isn't so bad. I can, you know, I'm, I'm good enough on my feet with my words. I can talk myself out of any of these situations. If he be, even began to think that, if that was the case, uh, Jesus appears to him in verse 11 that night to prep him for what's to come. Paul wasn't going to be able to talk his way out of every one of these situations. You know what? And neither are we sometimes. Sometimes we're going to face persecution. We're not going to be able to pull our citizenship card. We're not going to be able to, you know, fight it out in court. Sometimes we're going to face persecution. It's quiet now. What an honor it is to face persecution for Jesus. What an honor it is. And so let's remember that. Uh, Jesus appears to him and preps him for all the things he's going to endure for his sake. Paul, you're not going to be able to talk your way out. You're going to have to stand... Uh, before these people and they're going to be vitriolic and they're going to be murderous and they're going to want your life. And here's the message that Jesus tells him. He says, take courage. You are my witness. You have spoken my message in Jerusalem. You must also speak it in Rome. That's what Jesus tells him in a nutshell. First of all, it's to take courage. And that's a good reminder for us. You and I need to be courageous. Amen. What am I talking about on Sundays? If you're here on Sundays, we shouldn't be easily shaken. We shouldn't emotionally come unglued. We shouldn't be deceived. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the hope of our calling, amen? So he says to him, you know, be courageous and, and take courage. And that's the first thing that a lot of us need to hear, especially when fear seems to set in. So Paul listens to what Jesus says to him. He knows where he's headed. He's testified in Jerusalem and he's going to be off to Rome as well. God doesn't always fill in all the blanks for us. You know, notice Jesus is coming to him and filling in the blanks for him. And I want you to notice something. There are times when God does fill in the blanks for us. Anybody have, you know, you, you ask God some specific things that you didn't know, and he gave you the answers. Raise your hand. Amen. So sometimes he does fill in the blanks for us, and he does here for Rome. When we, when God does this, we should pay very close attention to what he says. Because if we needed to know the specifics, it's certainly because we need to prepare ourselves for what's to come. If God reveals things to us, it means we need to prepare ourselves for what's to come. If he doesn't tell us anything, then we're fine and we just trust him day by day. But there are people right now getting prophetic dreams and visions of things that are to come. Anybody hear any of that chatter out there? Well, why would God fill in the details? Because we need to prepare ourselves. The church needs to be prepared for what's to come. And if persecution is to come, hello, we should be prepared for it. Prepare yourself. 
And so here we are. This examination is over. The Romans rescue him. Jesus appears to him. Verse 12 through 22 describes another conspiracy by the religious power brokers to kill this man of God. These religious leaders were always, the religious leaders were always a murderous group if you study Israel's history. They murdered the prophets, they plotted to kill Jesus, and now they decided that Paul has to die. I want you to see that. Religion is not a good thing. And to be, sometimes the more religious a leader is, the, the more carnal and worldly and the more, uh, you know, desirous they are of maintaining their power, power. Be careful about people who are religious, amen? You know, we shouldn't be religious at all. We should be people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're Christ followers, amen? We don't do things for religious rule keeping and to do lists and, and, and to please God. We please God because of the blood of the lamb. And so we should serve God with a thankful heart, not out of religion. Verse 12 and 13, some of those men there, 40 of them at least, form a conspiracy to kill Paul. They take an oath and they attach a hunger strike to it. No one's going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. How many realize that's pretty serious right there? If I said 40 people from a drug cartel are locked and loaded and they're coming for you and they're going to get you tonight, you'd still look like statues right now. That'd be a little scary, right? You're going to have to fight to stay alive or hide or at least do 40 of them. You're going to at least do a couple magazine changes during that. You know, you got to let this hit you a little bit. It's a serious situation. They want this guy dead, and they said, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill him. That's about as serious as it gets. So this, this situation is ramping up here. It's not just a mob or a riot or a bunch of religious people who are all ticked off now. They've made a pact. They've taken an oath. They swore not to eat or drink, and they want to kill this guy. In verse 14 and 15, the high priest is made aware of the conspiracy. So there again, if this was a righteous man, you know, how do you just murder people? You really don't even know the details of what you know, Paul has done. There's really no charge against him worthy of the death sentence. Even the Romans figured that out. But the high priest is like, yeah, we're going to kill him. And he's made aware of the plot. Now their plan was to tell the commander what? To bring Paul down because we want more information. You know, there are sometimes people just, you know, want to get you in situations and pull information out of you. But you and I need to discern the intent. There's some meetings we shouldn't show up for. There's some partnerships we shouldn't get in. There's some relationships we shouldn't start. But Paul's at the mercy of, you know, the situation here. He's in chains. Their pretext is, hey, we want to know more information about this. You know, we're, we're zealous to find out the details. And so they, their plan is to tell the Roman commander to bring them down. When they bring them down, they're going to kill them. Now, obviously, these guys were serious. They were willing to trade their own lives to get this deed done because you don't kill a Roman citizen under Roman guard and just walk away. So these guys were willing to die to kill Paul. That's as serious as it gets. Um, the plot's made, the players are in place, the trap is set, but God has an inside man. Isn't that an awesome thing? God's always fighting for us. God's always working angles for us. God's going before you, saint, and he's ordering your steps, and he's clearing out obstacles, and he's leveling mountains. Come on tonight. I wish there were some people in here to make a little bit of noise. You got, you got COVID tongue or something? I'm preaching good tonight, right? 
So God's got an inside man. They're, these guys are talking about their plot. They're talking to the high priest. And what? Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, hears the plot. He hears what's going on. And the, the Lord allows him to be in the right place at the right time. His nephew hears that they're plotting to kill his uncle. Lucky coincidence? No, it's a God incidence. God is always fighting for us. Amen. In verse 17 through 18, Uncle Paul gets the word from his nephew. He tells, him, he tells him, go speak to the Roman commander. He doesn't tell him to tell the centurion. He says, go to the commander. Tell him you have something you know, to tell him. So there's wisdom in there. To the credit of the Roman commander, he listens to the young man. How many realize these guys, these guys don't need all this aggravation? You know, they're Romans, they're, they've conquered an area, now they've got these religious people fighting and, and starting trouble, and they don't want trouble, but, you know, here comes this kid, and he's got information. The Roman commander could have just said, I don't want to hear it anymore. You know, I'm not, you know, just whatever they want to do with this guy. But no, God moves on him, he hears, the kid comes, he tells him what's going on, that there's 40 men bound by an oath to murder the prisoner, and they're, you know, they're waiting for you to bring him down. Don't give in to them. Uh, the Roman commander listens, and he takes, he takes, you know, very decisive action. In verse 22, the commander wisely instructs Paul's nephew to keep all this a secret. And that shows him to be more wise and adept than the conspirators were because they couldn't keep it out of the ears of other people what they were going to do. But the Roman says, don't tell anybody, and he lets him go. And I want to say something about that. Every Christian should be able to control their mouths and keep a secret, to keep a confidence. Did you ever ask somebody, can you keep a secret, and they say no? Most of the time, even if they can't keep a secret, they go, yeah, yeah, I can keep a secret. What is it? What is it? Tell me what the secret is. You know, if you know someone can't, can't keep a secret, and we know some people can't, you say, well, how do I know somebody can't keep a secret? Because they tell you everybody else's secrets, Right? Oh, did you know what happened to Ed in the office? Did you know, did you, you know, Barb this weekend, she was out in the party. She had a lampshade on her head and she was crazy. You know what the water cooler people just, bop, 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 gossips. There's some people who can't keep secrets. That's a bad testimony for a Christian. I have, I have more tolerance for drug addicts and deviants of all kinds, but gossips drive me nuts. I have a small plot out back with holds dug for gossips. People who can't keep a secret, people who can't close their mouth. The Bible talks about them as talebearers, gossips, busybodies, troublemakers, and they're mentioned in Scripture as the worst of people. Do not be numbered among them. Learn how to keep your mouth closed. Learn how to keep confidence. Learn how to keep a secret. Huh. There's things that people tell me, I'll go to the grave with them. Sometimes, you know, I come home from a counseling appointment. My wife says, how was your appointment? It was good and no details. If that person didn't say I could share, well, it's just my wife. I could tell my wife. There's, if it's shared just with me, it stays with me. And you should be the same way. Thanks for that amen, Charles. It's a good man, Charles. So verse 23 through 26, the Roman commander makes plans to move Paul to Caesarea. Now, he moves him with a small army. I don't know if you listened or you're reading the text here, but he gets 70 horsemen, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's a small army right there. 
That's like, you know, horsemen were cavalry. They, they were, you know, they were a very powerful military implement. He put 70 men on horses and 200 spearmen to protect one little old Paul. Why? Because at this point, this Roman, you know, this Roman Claudius, who's the commander, he doesn't want this thing slipping out of control because he's going to be held responsible for it at this point. They had to keep order. So here's Paul getting uh, the, you know, a royal guard here to protect him from his own countrymen. And I mean, what a detail he gets. What a security detail. 70 horsemen, 20 spearmen. And he's pr provided transportation. They give him mounts and they let him ride uh, from Jerusalem to Rome. Claudius writes a letter that's sent before him to Felix, the governor, uh, Every time I hear about Felix the governor, who's old enough to remember Felix the cat? Every time I hear Felix, that's what I see. It won't go away. I've tried counseling and everything. But Felix the cat, I mean, Felix the governor gets the letter. The issue is a high-level problem now. Claudius is very systematic the way he handles it. He passes the problem on to Felix. Remember I said, Paul is going to be like the proverbial can kicked down the road. Everybody was going to pass Paul along. Why? Because he was a problem, and nobody wanted to make a decision, and they wanted to kill him, but they found no fault in him. It kind of reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? You know, here these guys want blood, and the Romans are like, he, he, what has he done? You know, Claudius doesn't wash his hands like was done with Christ, but he does kick the problem down the road. He sends a letter. Uh, Paul's headed to Rome, and you say, well, that's an interesting turn of events. Well, it was God's plan all along. And I want you to see that the providence of God, how God gets things done. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's a little scary. Hello. But God always gets us where we need to be. Paul is going to be exactly where he needs to be. 27 through 29, Claudius lets Felix know the issue. Paul uh, is sent there, and, the, and uh, Claudius includes the fact that he doesn't, in his estimation, Paul has done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. This seems to be a squabble over their law, and that's the message he sends on. The plot against Paul's life is made known to Felix in verse 30. So he's like, Felix, I want you to know the issue. I want you to know this guy's got people who are trying to kill him. You know, here's, here's the whole package wrapped up in a nice, neat bow. Paul makes it to Rome in verse 31 through 35. Felix agrees to give him a hearing. He puts him in Herod's praetorium. Basically, he puts him up in the governor's mansion. So God is taking care of Paul while this is uncomfortable to be in change, we're going to see God continue to use Paul. You know, he wrote the majority of his epistles to the early churches while he was in chains. Philippians, the, the, you know, he wrote the, the, the epistle of love while he was chained up. So none of this, although it would be very upsetting to us, and I'm sure it rattled Paul a little, it doesn't stop him from doing the will of God for his life. And I want to encourage you today, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, whatever injustices or whatever obstacles that are before you, whatever questions are on your heart that you can't find answers to and they don't seem to go away, don't let it stop you from seeking God and serving God and doing what you're called to do. There's no reason why we should get out of the race, amen? God, Jesus told us we'd have trouble, so we shouldn't even be surprised. And persecution just purifies us. So get ready, be prepared. God is telling us the details and giving us the warnings so that we'll be prepared to be useful in his hands in these times. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you tonight for 
this time of study together. I thank you for this text. I pray that your people would be hungry and thirsty for the word, that these things that were said here tonight by the Holy Spirit would stick in our hearts and we would chew on them and meditate on them and we would think about them. We wouldn't just walk out of the anointing here and just you know, go back into our routine, but we would feast on the word and we'd meditate on the word and that you would work the word in us so that it would come through us. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.